Welcome to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge, brought to you by the world's leading underground construction equipment company, Ditchwitch, proud to support the sports you love. I'm Steve Brigman, and I'm joined by the host of Bass Edge Television, Mr. Aaron Martin. Good morning, sir. Hey, good morning, Mr. Brigman. I hope this glorious spring day finds you doing well. Oh, excellent. I'm feeling great. I'm ready for a good show. Well, you'll be happy to know that we have FLW Touring Pro Jim Tut up to talk about fishing in May and a little later. Steve Sacheray of Superstart Batteries shares some very important information on battery life. Well, then, let's rock and roll. Get her like that, with boy. Good job. Well, I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge of bass fishing today. Oh, did you see yes, that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. <laughs> Watch for the fish to pace the bait. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. That's full contact fishing right Man. there. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Well, Aaron, I was thinking about this week when I was running around through my garage. I remembered you saying last week how you were going to rearrange your tackle. You had a whole new system worked out. Did you get that deal done? Not so much. That's kind of a work in progress, Steve. You know, <laughs> I know you've got a, a different organizational system. You know, I, I've seen your garage. Hey, don't be fooled by appearances. I know where everything's at. I can go out there and dust it off and be gone in a few minutes, you know. So uh, it's more organized than it looks. It's like my desk. Well, you know, I've always wanted to go through your garage because I figured I might find some collectible lures that either, A, might catch a fish or might be worth some money, you know, on eBay. Hey, you absolutely would. It's funny. I've got this wad of lures. I run into it, it seems like, every time I move, and it's out there somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where, but it's this kind of conglomerate of lures that I've kind of thrown in this box when they've outgrown the tackle box, and they're all globbed up, but... Man, I guarantee you there's some collector's items in that mess. Well, I remember you trying to get me to use something called a Moss Boss. You know, a uh, matter of fact, we were at a, I think I was buying a fishing license at a tackle store, and you came across this, and, and I've never seen somebody get so excited over a, a lure in my life. But, uh, yeah, I, I do remember that. Yeah, we were up in Walker, Minnesota, and going through the tackle store, and I saw a Moss Boss, which I thought they had made one since I was a kid. You know, it's a kind of a plastic spoon that sits on top of the water and uh, and it'll just work totally weedless over any mat. But I was just kind of excited to see it was still around. So with an old friend, me and my brother Jeff used to just love to fish those. And I think probably anglers didn't like them because the strike to hookup ratio was low on these things. They didn't hook fish well, but man, the strikes, it's worth just watching the strikes. So I was excited to see it. And I tried to get you to use it uh, up there in Minnesota where all that moss was, but you're kind of stubborn. I think the minute I said use it meant you weren't going to use it. Now, now that is not true, but um, I, I will say I do still have it, and it it has found its way into my uh, arsenal of tackle. Uh, the only problem is I've got to break the seal on it. I'm, I'm thinking, see, I'm, I'm kind of taking the approach there that maybe it'll become uh, kind of a collector's item. So you know, how, if you keep the package in that intact, then it, it's worth more. Well, I'm guessing in your new system, there's not a box for moss bosses. <laughs> no, I, I I I can't say that I have you know one of the uh, the Plano boxes labeled moss bosses. Uh, you know. But um, that is one of a kind, and I do still have it, and we will get the opportunity to use that at some point in time. (laughs) Well, that's just a fun thing for me to give you a hard time about. But, uh, you know, it's interesting to look back and some of the things we used to fish with and 
they're gone. I mean, they just don't exist, and they were great fish catchers, but uh, we've evolved into something else, and I just think it would be fun to go back and try to catch fish off those lures. I think they ought to have a tournament where you have to use lures before 1970 or something. Well, that would that would take out uh, probably 95% of the uh, <laughs> the fishing population because, you know, but I, I do get your point, and I do think it's a, it's a, a valid point. As we have seen, you know, there's a lot of lures that kind of come into vogue, and, and there's a lot of lures that actually are still on the market, maybe not in as great of production as what they once were, but, uh, you know, they, they kind of sit on the sidelines, but yet they're still very effective. And, and that's one of the things that I'd like to get your opinion on. Do you think it's easier or harder to catch fish today than it was, you know, back in the, the Stone Age uh, prehistoric days oh. when you guys started? <laughs> Well, we used to just spear them in those days. <laughs> yeah. No, no. That's, a, that's a great question, and I figured you'd bring that up one day because you and I have a, uh, well, we've, we've enjoyed talking about this, and uh, I think it's a great debate. I think there's there's certainly a side to each side. Let me say this. You look back on your life, and you, you see all these great fishing trips you had and all these fish you catch, and that might be sort of a selective memory as much as anything, but, uh, you know, this did seem like when I was a kid, I caught more fish. Now, look, there's no doubt about it. Technology today makes catching a lot of fish easier because fishing is more efficient. We have rods, reels, we got GPSs, we got boats that can go places, trolling motors that are quieter. And today there's more lakes than when I was a kid, you know, more places to fish. And game departments are state agencies are better funded. And the technology has come along with building quality fisheries. So, so you just got all of that. But it's hard not to look back and say, remember a day when I used to wander down to my uncle's pond or something or pull up in a cove in a lake and you're the only one there and the bait you throw is the first lure that fish has seen all day. There's something to be said versus today sometimes there's so many people fishing you go into a cove and there's six people who fished before you in there. So uh, I don't know. I think it's a good question. I think the answer to that is bass are still bass. Well, I, I agree. And I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, trying to compare, perhaps if we were to compare baseball players or golfers, you know, back in the day, uh, compared to modern day players. I don't know that it's an equal comparison. There certainly are things that, that stand out based upon what you spoke of with technology and all the different things. Yeah. But I, I've got to tell you, my you know, my opinion is that, you know, in this day and age, we know so much more about uh, what the fish are doing. There's so much more information that's readily available that help make us better anglers. Plus, the fact is, like you speak of, we have a tremendous amount of more anglers that are out there targeting these bass. A bass is still a bass, but I still say that in today's age, it's a little more difficult, you know, to kind of put the, the pieces of the puzzle. And consistency is what we're talking about. It's not just going out and having an hour of phenomenal fishing, but when you look at of eight-hour periods, day in, day out, you know, there's definitely more things that's readily available uh, to us to be able to target these fish with. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say that in my day, it would have been easier for somebody just to walk up and catch their first ever bass. But of course, today it's easier to catch a 20-pound bag for a tournament. So, you know, different times. I mean, I think it's uh, us old-timers look back uh, with uh, fondness at empty coves, but fishing's just come a, a tremendous way. And, you know, it's a, it's a great age to be an angler. Boy, that is for sure. And, and you know, we're going to hear from one of the best anglers that's been out and around for a long time that has a lot of experience both with kind of the days of old and the lures that once were and also, uh, you know, having to get out there and compete on a regular basis and having success 
uh, in using some of this new technology and these newer lures that we speak of. And, of course, that's Jim Tut. Yeah, Jim is going to talk about uh, changing conditions, and uh, we're going to maybe touch on a little post-spawn. And, uh, boy, all all important stuff. So uh, let's just take a quick break here, Aaron, pay a few bills, and come back and visit with Jim Tut. You've got the truck. You've got the toys. Now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both. It's the tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. You want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 towing pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge, brought to you in part by Ditch Witches Zon, establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. You know, the conditions we face as anglers on any given day change on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Without warning, the bass will often change their preference or even location. And here to help us put those pieces of the puzzle together is veteran FLW pro Jim Tut. Jim, welcome to The Edge. Hey, Aaron, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. You know, Jim, here we are the middle of May, and the spawn has come and gone for really a lot of the areas across right. the U.S., and recreational boat traffic is obviously steadily increasing. Can you sure, give us some direction on where we need to be concentrating our efforts to find those high percentage areas? May is definitely a tough time of year to fish in most parts of the country. The spawn is pretty much over, um, and boat traffic is picking up, so it's definitely a tough time of the year. When I go out in May, uh, I, I like to fish shallow, so typically I will start shallow. Start in the areas where you know that the fish typically spawn. You know, uh, pockets, uh, a lot of fish will still be on main lake park so there there'll be plenty of fish shallow but their their habits are starting to change a little bit uh gonna be tough for a while um i typically would start shallow where they spawn and if they're gone start working out you know towards the first points coming out of the spawning coves and um you know working on out there's a lot of fish that have already spawned early early in the year especially where i live in texas and um you know they're already deep but uh, typically i like to fish shallow so i'll start shallow and as far as uh, lure selection, gosh, there's a variety that, you know, uh, soft jerk baits are still real strong, uh, Senkos, uh, flukes, those type of things. And the topwater bite is really, really starting to get good. It's, it's probably one of my favorite times to fish because um, like a pop bar or a buzz bait are really strong right now. Well, and, you know, going back to what you said as far as starting place and, and finding out where, the, where they spawn and kind of working your way out, let's say we're, we're going down, you know, into a major creek arm of a, of a reservoir. Are there particular areas, you know, normally you have kind of a one side of the, the creek channel is going to be a little bit deeper. The other side might be a little bit shallower. Are there, you know, any clues that you can give us, you know, should we be focusing on kind of that deeper side of that, that creek channel or, or more over on the flat side? Well, this time of the year, I like to focus more on the flat side for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, the fish are going to be spawning for the most part on the flat side, and you're going to have a fry. The fry is still going to be bunched up, and they're going to typically hold around any kind of isolated structure that you might have, like a single laydown or some stick-ups or lily pads, which are starting to grow this time of the year. And they kind of transition out towards the, the deeper side, like the swing channels and stuff like that. But... Um, that's typically where I'll start, on the flat sides and work towards the creeks. Later in the year, they're going to start bunching up in the creeks, like in the summertime or even in the uh, fall. But uh, this time of year, I'll go for the flat side. And, you know, I want to get into kind of your thought process a little here. So you're going to have to bear with me. But, 
you know, when you're you're identifying, let's say we we've kind of determined we're going to fish like you speak of the the shallower side of the creek channel out on the flats because we've got the the fry and that that's coming into to play. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, they're they're starting to make their way towards you know some of their haunt summer haunts, the deeper water. What is your criteria, or how do you determine? that you've really not only found, you know, numbers or quantities of bass, but also that there's some quality to go along with that. You know, this time of the year, as far as quantity versus quality, um, I'm still looking for a lot of single fish. Uh, What I mean by that is single fish guarding fry or females that are moved off the beds. They're not quite really bunched up yet like they would be in the summertime, so I'm actually targeting not necessarily individual fish, but small groups of fish. Again, on isolated type structure, whether it be grass, wood, or, you know, some rocks, that type thing. But um, it's hard to determine that time of year, especially if you're sight fishing fish. You might see some fish that look big, but they're going to be a lot of post-spawn fish. They're long and skinny, so um, in a tournament situation, the weights aren't typically as high as they would be, let's say, in the pre-spawn or in summertime. You know, Jim, what I'm gathering is that when we're targeting these, say, smaller groups of fish or even the isolated, you know, singles, onesies and twosies, uh, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that these fish are on the move and this isn't, you know, where they're going to uh, kind of their final resting place for the year, I guess. Absolutely. They're definitely on the move. Um, they're going to move, obviously, obviously, to the summertime haunts where they're going to start bunching up and, you know, typically go to deeper water. If you're uh, in a tournament-type situation and you're pre-fishing four, five, six days before the tournament, you kind of plan on what's going to happen, not necessarily what's happening right now. And you want to look for um, spawning areas, again, like we mentioned, big flats and things that will actually lead out to deeper water, uh, tapering points that run out to creek bends or um, grass edges, that you know, inside lines that run out to, to outside lines of grass. And if you have a lake that actually has a lot of grass, let's say hydrilla or some good coontail, those are going to be your, your points to target. They're going to actually go to grass lines inside grass lines or even outside grass lines and so it's very key to stay on the move this time of the year uh, if you go to an area where you got some bites in practice or just going fishing and they're gone typically you want to turn around and just instead of throwing to the bank throw deeper and then move the cast length and go deeper uh, they're not going to travel great great distances they're not going to go miles and miles they're going to go hundreds of yards uh, but not miles so they're going to be around close you just have to kind of nail it down as to where they're holding at that time well and, and the interesting thing that i find about you know our sport is the fact that although they have you know these miles and miles and acres and acres of water to roam uh, if you can find those traffic ways of where they're using to go to and from, you know, we know that each year they have to spawn, and then obviously they're going to turn around and go right back out to where they, you know, were in the summer or in the winter and, you know, kind of the spring and the fall resemble one another. Um, that can be huge with, you know, having success on the water if you can figure that out. Oh, absolutely. And, and the thing is, it's, you know, on, on giant reservoirs, let's say like, Lake Erie or Toledo Bend or Lake Champlain, um, you know, you have vast amounts of water, but a bass is a small little creature, and you're trying to put something even smaller, like a jig, in front of his face, and so um, they're not everywhere, but they really will start to bunch up, and it's critical to, if you get a bite on one of these um, areas where they're moving to, let's say a point or a grass line, you know, to slow down and, and be thorough there, because they're starting to bunch up. And it can be a place where you can really load the boat in a short period of time and in a short distance. So uh, you don't want to get discouraged by covering a lot of water at this time and not getting a bite. And then getting bites is very key to know when to stop and slow down. It's a changing point for sure. Sure. And, you know, if we were to look, I guess, Jim, on the the front deck of your boat while you're targeting, you know, Mm -hmm. one of these locations, what baits are we likely to see kind of as your staple or your go-to lures? 
Absolutely. In May, my, I have four or five primary baits. Number one at this at this period in time is going to be some type of topwater, and I, I prefer my number one would be a buzzbait at this time of the year for two reasons. Number one, the bass are eating their fry, and they're starting to eat the little minnows and stuff that come up, and the shad are starting to bunch up, and that's a very good shad-type bait. Number two, you can cover a tremendous amount of water with that thing. Second lure would be a popper or some type of popper like that, or even a small zero spook. You want relatively small because the bait's typically smaller this time of the year. And it's a bait where you can slow down and be a little more thorough. If you're fishing around those uh, isolated type of structure, we were talking about logs, small grass patches, that pawpaw will sit right there in front of their face for a long time. The third bait I would have is going to be a Cinco-type lure. Very, very deadly any time of the year, but really good this time of the year. Shallow diving crankbaits, let's say like uh, a Bill Norman um, middle end or the um, Lucky Craft 1.5, you know, something that runs um, two to five foot deep. The third thing I would probably use the most, uh, I'm getting a little partial to like the um, chatterbait type lures. It's a good jig type lure, but you can also cover a lot of water with it. So um, that's kind of what I'd start off with. The other thing that's very, very good this time of year, if they've actually moved out a little bit further where they're starting to bunch up on those gathering places we talked about, Carolina rig can be just deadly this time of the year, very deadly. The fish are somewhat lethargic, and you can set that thing right in front of them and just make them eat it, so to speak. But uh, that's kind of the rundown initially, and, um, you know, those work anywhere in the country. Well, and something that you kind of uh, shed some light on a little bit earlier, but the idea of covering water, you know, and making a lot of cast leads us to believe that, you know, our chances of catching fish should go up is kind of the thought process there. But really the fact of the matter is that, you know, if we're not offering the the bass what they want in the manner in which they want it, you know, we're simply wasting valuable time. And how can we as anglers gauge when we need to kind of set down those reaction style baits and maybe pick up, you know, like a jig or a soft plastic or a shaky head and, and just, you know, present it a little bit slower? You know, that is, that's the key between a successful angler and a non-successful angler. Anybody can cast, anybody can cover water. But the criteria that I use this time of year, especially if I'm searching, in other words, fishing fast, and, and I get a bite, and let's say I get another bite, and then for some reason they, they stop biting the lure that I'm throwing. Let's say they get off the buzz bait. You know there's a few more fish in the area. At that point, that's what I would use to determine whether I need to slow down, you know, change lures and set it in front of them or not. And so... It's a difficult choice. You need a, some history of the lake as well, you know, to know what kind of forage they're going to buy. Another key thing that I hadn't touched on along that same lines is May is a good time to go brim fishing, perch fishing, red ear, bluegill. And bass are really keying on those too, so you want to keep that in mind as well, which is kind of different from what I've talked about. But uh, that's another key little pattern within the pattern. Well, and I think that's important to remember that because a little bit later we're going to dive off into the color categories and how to break those down. But, you know, it's not just your typical uh, crayfish and, say, you know, shad-type baits that that you always want to have. You know, you've got to consider, like you said, the brim that come into play because, as we know, bass love to feed on those. Oh, absolutely, especially this time of the year, you know. um, The key determination, kind of backtracking just a tad here as far as, you know, when to move, when to speed up. The gauge that I use if I'm practicing for a tournament is, I call it the three fish rule. If I'm fishing an area and I get three bites or catch three fish, I will pretty much determine that there are a lot of fish there. If I go down a bank and get one bite, let's say, in 500 yards, I kind of, in my mind, think, okay, that's a single fish. There's not a group up in there. But if I 
if I go down there and get three, then at that point, I will actually either cut my hooks off to get some more bites or leave the area to find another area and then come back later during the tournament. So, um, you know, you're talking about moving fast. That's, that's the gauge that I use when I need to either slow down more, not set the hook, or, you know, change lures to see if I can get some more reaction bites from those same fish. And kind of, uh, you know, try and disprove what you've already found. Exactly, exactly. Um, You know, and then you get a size factor in there. And, again, that's going to determine the the size of fish that we're going for is going to be really determined by a couple of things. Number one, the lake that we're fishing on. Um, You know, if you go to a Lake Falcon or a Okeechobee or somewhere like that that has big fish, you know, two-pound fish are not going to really help you in a tournament situation. But if you're on, let's say, uh, Beaver Lake or uh, Lake Norman, a two-pound fish is going to be huge. So, um you have several factors that come into play as far as location of the lake, you know, and size of the fish, too. Sure, that's a good point. And, and you know, now diving off into the, the color situation, I mean, really, mm-hmm. you go to any uh, tackle store, and the aisles are essentially lined with hundreds of color choices <laughs> for really any given bait. You know, help, help us simplify these choices and kind of tell us your top colors uh, for the various conditions, you know, that you encounter across the United States. Sure. There's several things that every lake has in common that I've found. Number one, they all have some type of shad, whether they're big gizzard shad or small, you know, little thread pin shad or just minnows. The other thing they have is there's always some type of brim, you know, whether it be red ear or uh, yellow perch up north or, you know, just little sunfish. And then you have uh, other types of lures like crawdads and things like that. So I'm pretty simple in my selection. I throw pretty much um, shad color lures, uh, watermelon red in my soft plastics like on the Senkos, brush hogs, that type thing. That's my go-to lure, watermelon red and, and or green pumpkin. And then on the crankbaits, I'm real basic. Um, clear water, clear type lures, you know, shad colors and dirty water, uh, chartreuse blue, that uh, hot mustard. So you're kind of matching the hatch, if you will as the predominant forage in the lake. If they're biting um, bluegill, uh, you know, watermelon red looks like a little perch with a little bit of chartreuse on the tail, and uh, that, that works all over the country. And, and another thing on colors, I think a lot of people get really carried away with colors, but confidence is really the key in the colors. You know, I know guys that kill them on solid red spinnerbaits. I have no confidence in that, but there are guys that catch them all the time on that. So um, there's something to do that for sure. Sure, and that goes a long ways. You know, we've said on here numerous times, if you don't have any confidence in it, what's the point of making the cast? Because it's not going to do you any good. You might as well pick up at something that uh, you at least feel is going to going to get you oh, something. Absolutely. In and another thing about that, fishing with a lot of co-anglers, uh, the co-anglers that I've actually had in my boat that have been the most successful are the guys who don't really get caught up in changing lures every two minutes as far as colors and things like that but actually cover the water that they're fishing more thorough with some basic colors, you know. Kind of what I mentioned, you know, shad-type baits, um, cloudy conditions, you know, throw watermelon. Uh, when the sun comes out, throw watermelon red. Darker, you know, in darker water, uh, natural colors in clear water. Pretty basic, but it actually works. <laughs> well, and, and that's the main thing, and I think, you know, the more that we can simplify it, because, you know, the sport can be a little bit intimidating if you go into, you know, read the magazines and go into the bait stores and things like that. It's like, okay, well, where do I start? You know, first we're trying to narrow sure. down this body of water that's maybe, you know, forty or 50,000 acres, and then not to mention match the baits and everything else that go along with it. But listen, uh-huh. Jim, before we uh, kind of, before we wind down here, I do want to get your just very quick opinion on something, and that is on the effectiveness of 
bait additives or, you know, the aftermarket scents and attractants? You know, sure. what's your thoughts on that? Well, I am a very, very firm believer in attractants, not a variety of, of attractants. And uh, I'm not sponsored by these people, so I'm not pushing, but I am a strong believer in Bang. I use Bang on all my soft plastics, even my moving lures. The other thing that I found is very successful last year is the Berkeley gulp type lures you know which have the gulp sure. on them um if the fish are active and biting it doesn't matter i mean you can throw it out there and they're going to run 20 yards to eat it but if you've worked through an area several times and you've caught four or five fish and it slows down um you know put some scent on your lure and i use the uh, aerosol type the spray cans bang and um i think that it will actually make fish do a couple things it leaves kind of a scent trail in the water, so if they're, you know, just chasing but not eating, it gives them a little more incentive to, to eat the lure, whether it's just plastic or a hard bait. And, I don't know, it's a confidence factor, but I definitely know that it works, and it will get more bites for me, and it, they seem to hold on to the bait longer, too. Well, and there again, it goes back to the confidence thing, and the other thing is that, you know, especially when it comes to a jig or a soft plastic or something like that, once, uh, you know, they get it into their mouth, perhaps they're going to hang on to it for a little bit longer, uh, you know, and ensure a decent hook set. You know, there's there's got to be some benefit. First-hand experience on that, this is kind of a, a, a short story real quick. Uh, I actually won a, a tournament down on uh, Sam Raven several years ago on rattle traps. Yeah, that was back at the old quick. Everstart, I think, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah, and I mean, I... I I was practicing with a buddy of mine, and the water was clear, and we had fish that would actually chase our rattle trap all the way to the boat several times, but they wouldn't they'd turn off right at the boat. And I kind of said something to the effect of, man, why are they chasing but not eating? Well, I just sprayed my rattle trap down with bang, and the next fish that bit it was, you know, 30 yards from the boat, and he inhaled it. And I thought, well, that was luck. Long story short, I kept using the bang, catching them. They were eating the lure in their throat, and he wasn't getting any bites. And during the tournament, I had great stringers every day, and my co-anglers weren't using any scent. And after I'd get a good lemon, I would kind of enlighten them, and they would actually go ahead and spray their rattle trap down. And the guys that I fished with did very well in the tournament. So I know that was a definite factor in that tournament. I actually, I think I remember that tournament, Jim. I think uh, you you uh, kind of knocked off Dickie Newberry there. It was kind of a neck and neck situation. You got him back. <laughs> I guarantee you, he uh, he's a good friend of mine. And uh, boy, I tell you what, he's a great fisherman. And I was very fortunate to uh, knock him off the phone that day. But uh, you know, just case in point, uh, don't neglect the sense just because you're using a crankbait or even a buzzbait. You know, a moving lure. They they work. Well, uh, we certainly appreciate that. And, Jim, unfortunately, we need to get out of here and uh, get to a commercial break. But before we do, thank you so much for joining us here on The Edge. We wish you uh, the best of luck, continued success, and certainly safe travels in your upcoming uh, season. It's been my pleasure, and thank you. Power. Productivity. Speed. It's the best trencher ever made, not to mention the best plow, dumper, tiller, backhoe, stump grinder, and tool carrier ever made. The Zahn, the revolution is here. 
Now you can harness the full power of your boat electronics and catch more fish. Introducing Electronics 101. Whether a beginner or more advanced, leading electronics instructor Mike Webb shows you how to get the most out of any sonar unit. Common problems and frequently asked questions are covered in detail. Electronics 101 also includes bonus deep fishing tips from industry pros. Master any brand graph. Order your DVD by calling 888-390-8780 or online at BassEdge.com. Hi, Angers. This is David Fritz. This is Guido Hibnan. Hi, I'm James Niggemeyer. This is Terry Bolton. Hi, I'm Jamie Cyphers. I'm Pam Martin-Wells, and you're on the edge. Well, Aaron, we talked about it last week, but being rapidly changing conditions, which we get so much in the spring, it can create a tremendous challenge. And man, guys like Jim, I mean, let's face it, they have to learn to... To, uh, to make those adjustments to survive in their business. Well, no question. And I think as anglers, if we're just breaking it down to kind of surviving on the water, I mean, all of us, that is a prerequisite you know, that all of us must must face and embrace because the conditions, whether it be the weather, whether it be what's going on with the fish, the forage, um, there's always something new that's right around the corner. Yeah, hearing him talk, it, it reminded me, there was a time in my life where the post-spawn was my biggest excuse, you know. You having an excuse, Steve? I, I just can't imagine that. Shocking, <laughs> shocking. Yeah, me not catching fish, I think that's pretty shocking. <laughs> <laughs> But but that used to be my big excuse. But you know, as a youngster, I I just didn't know. You know, it's rapidly changing. After that, the fish are spread out, and I just didn't make the adjustments till summertime to my humps. So that's uh, yeah, that was my best excuse. Jim's taking my excuse away, man. Well, I can't help but think of you know, had I been paying attention, you know, when I was younger and going down the banks and 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 in a canoe or or whatever I happened to be in at the time. Just think of if we would have logged all of that information and and really paid attention really you know keyed in on what was going on when the fish weren't biting but then also taking that information of when they did turn on and kind of filing that away do you realize how uh, much easier and and how steep the learning curve would have gotten for our development as anglers oh that's that's just so true and i just love to listen to the old timers of course you know i used to listen to some old timers when i was young that would have been your great great grandfather's age and yeah, it's just crazy. It's just incredible how many things they told you that today we still read about in fishing magazines. And I think when you look at last week's interview with Andre Moore talking about, you know, that he really likes to see those changing conditions because either an old guy or a new guy, not meaning old as far as in age, but I'm talking about a seasoned veteran, uh, comes in. And that's normally who can uh, really bear down and, and just come out with a successful day. And if it's a tournament, normally win the tournament. And then you take, you know, this week's Jim Tut's response, it's the exact same way of being able to look at the conditions that you're faced with and just almost develop a comfort with, hey, this is just fishing. You know, there's no point in getting all stressed out. Um, this is just a phase that the fish are going through, a post-spawn. And, of course, we can certainly turn it into, you know, the dog days of summer and, and all the many excuses that we come up with. But it just comes down to, hey, this is what's happening. All I've got to do is just put the right combination together keep my head about me and move forward well man that is good advice say so, Aaron, i got a boat question for you this week from boat Edgar. question huh a boat yeah well man who else would i ask man you're the man here and uh, and i know this question is going to get you going you're going to have something to say about this so edgar from florida wants to know i have a 1996 javelin 357a that's 15 foot three inches it's a deep v bass boat how big of waters would you recommend to use this boat in on windy days with the main area of Lake Seminole just north of the dam in Chattahoochee, Florida work? I would really like to know. 
Edgar says thanks. Well, Edgar, that is a good question. And uh, first, I would kind of like to throw out there, I'm just of the belief that regardless of how big or small you view your craft, it has less to do with that and it has more to do with just your comfort and just how you drive. You know, you can take a 21-foot bass boat, and if you drive it crazy and and, uh, aren't really slowing down and paying attention to the conditions that you're dealt with, uh, you can get in just as much trouble in a big boat as what you can in a little boat. But bottom line, I think when, to answer your question specific to Lake Seminole, you know, the the main lake area down there is you're heading towards uh, the dam and and over into uh, Florida from the Georgia side. You know, that gets pretty pretty wide and of course it's a it's a flat area so there's nothing really to protect the wind the good thing about lake seminole is that the channels are very well marked thankfully because that is a stump field and that's why it's such a big bass factory and uh, the width of the channels are obviously you can pass two boats uh, running wide open but if you get in a windy situation i definitely suggest you slow down for something like that the other thing is if you keep your nose up And if you just take your time, you've got to beat it into your head and allow enough time. If you're in a tournament and you've got to get back, just know that it's going to take 20 or 30 minutes longer than what it did when you were heading to your spot under calm conditions. And keep that nose of the boat up, take your time, and uh, that is really how you kind of maintain safety. It has less to do with the length of your boat. The good thing about the deep V is it's going to help kind of cut those waves, uh, break that up for a smoother ride. But I can't stress enough, you know, slow down, wear your life jacket, make sure that kill switch is attached, and uh, normally you're going to be okay. Absolutely. And I just, I'll just add, pay attention. When you talked about uh, the big waves and keeping your nose up, uh, Thoughts of Vermilion came back, and, uh, you know, to be honest with you, we shot the show in Vermilion, and we were in some protected water, and we didn't pay that much attention to our trip back, and and we had, uh, the wind had come up, and we had some huge waves, so, uh, you know, just pay attention, too, when you're back in that cove, what's happening down the main lake. Absolutely, because, uh, you know, you get on those big bodies of water, and what's happening, I had the same deal happen to me in Texas one time, you know, uh, it was calm where I was at, and then I pulled around into the main lake, so um, just uh, keep your head about you, and and just slow down. I cannot stress that enough. Well, Aaron, I want to throw this in here. Uh, you know, we were talking about lures earlier and these old-fashioned lures, and I was talking about this the other day with an old buddy of mine that I used to fish with in high school, and we used to have a bait. And, and back in the old days, you know, when the weight craze came along here not too long ago, you know, we, we looked at each other, us old guys, and said, well, we've been fishing wake bait since we were children, but... There's an old bait, and none of us can remember the name of it. And I was going to see if any of our readers out there uh, are familiar with this and can send me and tell me what the name of this bait is. It's essentially, the only color I ever saw it in was white. It's shaped like a uh, lipless crankbait. It had a white feather on the end, but it had this, like a lip on its belly, like in the middle. And when you pull it across the top of the water real slow, it just ripples, you know, like a wake bait. And... If anybody knows what I'm talking about, I would appreciate you. I'm going crazy trying to remember that. Man, I'd like to see that because that sounds like that would be something that worked. Oh, man, like the wake bait. We used to have a lot of baits that did that. Have you ever heard of a Billy Bass lure? I Actually, I have not. Oh, man. Billy Bass lure was an old wooden carved lure that uh, you'd wake across the top, and we caught many a fish. Many a day I'd gone down to my uncle's pond, and that's the only bait I had tied on. So, But, man, if anybody knows what that lure is, please tell me. I'm going crazy. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, with with all of the uh, listeners that are out there, surely somebody has at least seen that, Steve, and, and can help you out. <laughs> that's great. Well, I'll tell you what, Aaron, we need to slip away again, 
And on the flip side, we're going to come back and learn a lot about batteries. You know the importance of protecting your investments. So why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. KeelGuard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. KeelGuard keel protectors. Hi, I'm Moses Mokawahi. I'm Sean Hernke. Hi, I'm Jared Littner. I'm Travis Hurley, and you're listening to Bass Edges, The Edge. You know, as anglers, we are known for pushing our batteries to the limits. Power required by today's electronics and accessories, as well as the constant load placed on them from the trolling motor, can often leave an uneasy feeling in the bottom of our stomach when it comes to having enough battery life to make it through the day. Offering his advice to help ease this feeling is Steve Sacheray from Superstar Batteries. Steve, welcome back to the show. Aaron, glad to be here with you. You know, Steve, first, I, I guess we have to start out by assuming, you know, that today's bass boats are equipped with the correct size of trolling motor, you know, that offers enough thrust. However, beyond, um, I guess, that are things that anglers can do to improve, really, their efficiencies on the water. Um, can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit and give us some tips that uh, kind of help us have a, a better day out there? Sure, Aaron. I, I guess I would ask people to think about their batteries in the same way they think about getting ready for any fishing trip. It seems like we'll, we're very willing to make sure we have the right lures and the right fishing poles. Um, the batteries are kind of the forgotten item. We just assume they're going to start. But we, we'd like for people to t pay a little more attention to their battery. Obviously, if their batteries aren't working properly, they're not going to have a very good day of fishing. So if you could try to limit the amount of weight that's in your boat, that will help the longevity or the life of your trolling batteries. The less weight that's in the boat, the easier it is to troll, the less of a chore it will cause on the batteries. We'd ask for you to pay attention to the battery cables, uh, clean the battery post if there's any white substance on there, kind of brush that off, uh, use a baking soda and water solution to neutralize that, and uh, clean them off, keep your posts clean so that you get the full power of the batteries coming through the cables. And... Um, Check the output of your uh, chargers on your boats as well. Um, if you're going to be using AGM or absorb glass mat batteries, make sure that your chargers on your boats are able to charge those types of batteries. Um, so just we're just asking you to pay attention to the batteries as you do, uh, you know, paying attention to the types of lures that you're bringing and the fishing poles that you have and that sort of thing. Well, certainly that's good advice. I, you know, I have to throw myself in this mix too. I'm, I kind of have a bad habit of when I hit to the lake, it's like you never know what uh, what you're going to need for the day, and I have a bad tendency of emptying out my garage and putting every lure and pole and everything else in the boat, and you don't realize how much, you know, the, the weight adds up to that. So, great advice. You know, one other thing that I would like to get your input on is... There are two, I guess, primary sizes of, of batteries that that's applicable for marine use, and I'm not sure that all of us understand uh, what those are, and I call them, I guess, Group 27 and 31. You know, in Bass Edge, we've basically, we've ran the, the Group 31 since our beginning and have never ran out of power. What is the, the difference between those two numbers? Well, that's a good point, Aaron. The, the, traditionally, the Group 27 size battery was a battery that people use for trolling motors and 
There's really only a, about an inch in length difference. They're roughly the same width and height. But what happens is with a Group 31 battery, you're able, because it's a little bit longer, you're able to put uh, more plates in it. Um, we put thicker plates in them, and basically they're going to be a heavier battery. You're going to have more lead in them, for example. So on a Group 27, you might be looking at 53 pounds on average. A, a Group 31, you're looking at 69 pounds on average. But you're going to get longer runtime, and that's that's what it's all about. Um, for example, a Group 27 deep cycle battery, you're looking at 175 minutes of runtime versus a Group 31, you're looking at 210 minutes. So people have gone more and more to the Group 31 size to get longer runtime. Does that also come into play as far as the number of charges that it can take, or does it just have more to do with like reserve capacity like you speak of? It does have a little bit to do with the number of, of charges that they could take just because they have a few more plates um, in each cell, and, and they're going to be thicker plates. But that, that brings up kind of a whole other point is people don't necessarily understand how to charge batteries properly and, and how big a battery that they might need. You know, generally we're recommending that you you only use 50% of the capacity of a battery. If you want to make a battery last longer, if you can make that discharge cycle um, more shallow, you're going to lengthen the life of your battery. So, you know, and that, that equates to runtime. So if you know how many amps you're going to draw with all of your accessories. Let's say you're going to draw 100 amps. If you could double that and have 200 amps worth of power available, you're really going to lengthen your runtime, and you're also going to lengthen the life of your battery. Well, that, that probably is exactly why then, for instance, just at Bass Edge, since uh, you know we made the switch just when I was an individual angler from the 27s to the 31s, why we have never ever went without you know, battery power as well as also, uh, you know, we've really never noticed the those batteries going down in strength. Yeah, you're you're charging those batteries properly, so you're you know you want to put back in in power by charging the battery exactly what you've taken out. So if if there was a way that you knew how many amps you pulled out of that battery, that's exactly what you want to put back into it. And obviously, you guys um, don't have so many accessories and so many loads pulling off of the batteries that you're you're causing the, the battery life to fail prematurely. You know, speaking of accessories, I mean, it seems like each year, manufacturing year that goes by, uh, we find out more ways to, to add on uh, accessories, whether it be, you know, power poles or oxygenators or the new HD technology on the graphs to side imaging to live well lights, the list goes on and on and on. And when you think about all of these different things that's getting placed on on the batteries. I, I guess perhaps explain a first off what AGM actually is and then is that a better technology is that better suited you know for the the angler. Okay AGM stands for absorbed glass mat. The absorbed glass mat is the type of separator that's used in, in this battery and it's a sponge-like separator that actually soaks up the acid or the electrolyte and holds it around the plate. There are some, some major advantages with AGM technology. Um, you're able to completely seal the battery, so you're not going to get acid leaking out of the top of the caps. You're not going to get uh, corrosion on the, on the top of the battery at the post. If it tips over, it's not going to leak. Even if you poked a hole in it, it's not going to leak because it's soaked up in that sponge-like separator. Um, there are pressure release valves that if that battery is extremely overcharged, they would pop open to release that pressure. 
you know, to reduce the, uh, the opportunity for that battery to have an explosion or, or to have some sort of a problem like that. But what happens is, as you can imagine, in any marine application, the waves pounding on that boat, uh, that vibration really affects the life of batteries. And the sponge-like separator really absorbs those waves, those pounding waves, and uh, it's a very vibration-resistant product. Um, so that helps as well, and um, it could... Theoretically, the battery could be installed in any position, you know, not that you'd want to do that in a boat, but it's it's just a safer product. The only stipulation is with AGM is you want to make sure you're charging it properly, and, and that's where you'd want to come back and check your owner's manual on your boat to make sure that the charger that comes with the boat will charge AGM batteries properly. They do need to be charged uh, a little bit differently than what we call regular flooded type deep cycle batteries, but other than that, stipulation there are so many advantages to using AGM they last longer they're more vibration resistant they don't leak um, that we think AGM is, is the wave of the future uh, speaking from from our perspective I mean we are tickled to death with them and lastly before we get out of here Steve I wanted to bring up because I think it's important you know anglers we're all very concerned about conservation and I think one of the things that you guys do through superstar you have one of the you know the best lead reclamation plants recycling facilities in the world. Uh, can you just talk just briefly uh, about that before we get out of here? Uh, yes. Any any of the scrap batteries or junk batteries, as, as they're known, that we take back from O'Reilly's that go back to our lead smelter are completely 100% recycled. Uh, we have a process that, of course, reuses the lead. We were recycling before it was cool to recycle. <laughs> that, that was mostly because there was a value in recycling. You know, the batteries were worth something. Um, so we reused the lead. We actually crushed the plastic cases. We reused that plastic to make uh, new cases or handles. Um, and then we actually recapture the acid as well, reformulate that acid and, and reuse that. And we have a patent on that process. And to my knowledge, we're the only company that does that in the world. So we're very concerned about the environment and 100% of the batteries we bring back to our facility, to our lead smelter, are recycled. 100% of that product, there's even a gas that's given off in that process. We turn it into a liquid nitrate and we add it to fertilizer. So we've got it uh, from start to finish handled and you can feel safe that the batteries that were taken back from you are going to be handled properly. Well, all good stuff, Steve. I appreciate your time, but before we get out of here, where can our listeners find out more about batteries and specifically Superstar batteries? Well, I would recommend that you go to BassEdge.com under the Ask the Pros section. BassEdge would be happy to answer any questions or feel free to go to your local O'Reilly Auto Parts store and one of their service techs, uh, they've become well-versed on batteries, and they would be glad to help you with any of your questions. Well, Steve, as always, thank you so much uh, for your wealth of information, and uh, we appreciate that and look forward to talking with you again in the near future. All right, Aaron. Good to be on with you. Now you can order Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing is host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Edwin Evers, Boyd Duckett, Alton Jones, and Pam Martin-Wells. The two sets include all 25 episodes with never-before-seen footage, over three hours of bonus pro angler interviews, bloopers, and highlights. Each two-disc set is just $19.95. Call 1-888-390-8780 or order online at BassEdge.com. 
Aaron, before we have to go, why don't you give something away? That sounds like a plan. And this week, uh, Jeffrey from Chicago, Illinois, is going to receive an Ardent Real Clean cleaning kit containing everything required for easy and regular maintenance on any make or model fishing reel. The kit includes the Ardent Real Clean degreaser, real butter oil, real butter grease, synthetic swabs, a silicone cloth, screwdriver brush, and durable case. So congratulations, Jeffrey. Uh, that will be on its way shortly. Oh, those are great kits, and you know, it only makes sense to take care of your reels like you do your guns. And uh, Great to hear from Jeffrey, a northern fisherman up there. Yeah, thanks, Jeffrey, for the entry. And, uh, Steve, unfortunately, uh, we've got to get out of here, but who do we have up for next week? That's going to be a great week next week. We're going to have veteran pro David Fritz. Well, we look forward to that. And be sure to look for us on Bass Edge Television, seen three times each week on the Outdoor Channel. We can also be found on the World Fishing Network and Wild TV in Canada. Also, log on to BassEdge.com for the latest tips from top pros and a chance to win great prizes. And for all you Facebook users out there, you can simply uh, get on there and search under Bass Edge. Until next time, I am Aaron Martin. And for Steve Brigman and the rest of the Bass Edge crew, we look forward to seeing you again next week right here on The Edge. This week's edition of Bass Edges The Edge has been brought to you by B&W Trailer Hitches, Ditch Witch, Mega Air Keel Guard, O'Reilly Auto Parts, and Legend Boats. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com. Be sure to join us next week on the edge.